Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by a lecturer in architecture at the University of Auckland, Dr. Karamina Muller. Is that the correct pronunciation of your name? Yes, Karamia. Yes. Karamia yeah. Muller. That's yes. the one. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I'm guessing your uh, surname is not from uh, Pacific Island origin. Uh, no, <laughs> um, but it's part of a Pacific um, colonial history. Right. Uh, so my um, great grandfather. Uh, is Swiss German and he came down on some sort of on a kind of uh, exploratory you know he's a bit of an adventurer and he worked at various um, colonial enterprises across the Pacific um, sort of in um, like 18 maybe in the 1830s sort of time and then he ended up settling in uh, Tonga and meeting a Samoan woman who he uh, consequently married um, and began a family, and I come from that line. Mm. I should say as well, you are, as far as we know, the first Samoan woman to get a PhD in architecture. Is that right? Yes, I am, um, as we know. Uh, <laughs> um, it's a very small field, so there hasn't been anybody else who's um, Samoan and, and a woman who's uh, sort of come up that anyone's come across, so um, the, as far as we know, and definitely the first one from the University of Auckland. Mm. And what was your PhD in, if you don't mind me asking? Not at all. Um, it was on how diaspora, um, Samoan diaspora, that is like Samoan communities and people who are spread across the world, uh, because uh, Samoans have a history of migrating. Um, there's quite large communities in LA, um, as well as New Zealand and then across Australia as well and it's about how they um, in the event of not having like sort of geographical space um, like a Samoa like a, the motherland so close how they might how their um, currently contemporary Samoans are thinking or at practicing um, sort of ritual ceremonies that used to require space, um, how they're doing that across dig the digital realm. Mm. Um, so it's sort of, it is a bit of a departure from uh, the built realm, um, but it sort of takes um, principles of traditional architecture and thinks about how, whether or not they, those principles persist in digital space. Mm. And is there a gra uh, an increasing use of digital uh, technologies in Samoan and Pacific architecture? Well, I guess I make the case that, um, in my doctorate, I make the case that initially uh, Samoan um, creative practices more broadly were sort of subjected to a disciplinary um, kind of splitting. So because they were observed by anthropologists and then later architects. And that, um, you know, sort of thinking about how to make space was sort of very much thought of through a Western lens. So the ways that um, space was sort of understood, or architecture was understood, was very Western. Um, and so I guess I make the case that it's actually more um, architecture and is a more spatialized practice within Samoan worldview. And therefore, I guess, uh, I've sort of forgotten your question. Um, <laughs> um, How much is digital sort of having an influence? Because we always think yes. of digital, of the right, sort of right. technologies being very part of the London yes. scene and American scene. Yes. Whereas there's, I guess there's a kind of a blindness in the rest of the world to the existence of an architectural world. Yeah. Especially around like the Pacific that. Islands and beyond that at all, even in yes. New Zealand. Yeah. Um, 
So is that is it something that's seeping over from the US and from the UK and Europe? Well, I actually met the case that um, rather than seeping over um, Pacific or Pacific diaspora, Samoan diaspora as well, uh, underneath that umbrella actually always have their kind of spatial practices and they're just applying them in digital ways and digital platforms. So it's less that, um, and sort of to kind of carry on that conversation that I had earlier was, or that dialogue I had earlier was... Um, that um, this idea of the way of practicing architecture Western sense may not be applicable. So it's they already have a kind of spatial practice and that's just being sort of, um, that's finding its own translation through digital platforms, social media platforms um, and other sort of forms of exchange online. Mm. And how does the spatial practice of Samoan and Pacific architecture differ to that of New Zealand or the Western world or European architecture, do you think? Well, we probably, I mean, obviously the Pacific is like made up of Micronesia, Melanesia and Polynesia and uh, Samoan, you know, sort of the Samoan diaspora, you know, we're Polynesian, whereas Micronesia and Melanesian have different um, building traditions, although arguably it's probably best not to only use those kind of, um, that uh, those ways of distinguishing the difference architecturally but um, so when you talk about New Zealand we do have like um, we do have uh, similarities that are you know Polynesian like for example we do have a sense of um, relationships being really important um, spaces that um, sort of single cell arguably but single cell in a way that um, rituals and ceremonies and processes can take place in a very indigenous way, a known way, um, and a culturally, socio-culturally sanctioned way um, mm. by people and communities within those single cell spaces. So that's kind of, that is something that's, um, that's uh, runs through Polynesian architecture, but also Micronesian and Melanesian. But there's also, you know, so aspects, you know, obviously timber construction uh, in Māori architecture is quite different from the kind, the construction in Samoa and so on and so forth. And even between Samoa and Tonga, there's quite different uh, ways of understanding space as well as constructing. Um, so, which is to say, um, it really depends on the region. There's actually within the broader oceanic or pacific region um even within the nation states there's very different ways of constructing and uh definitely with samoa and the kind of pacific um as we sort of think about fiji um samoa and tonga uh we think about more fully construction which is sort of um uh different ways have different uh, different places have different ways of constructing it but it's sort of an open pavilion with a roof and mm. um, different lashing techniques um, to bring uh, the different timber members together are those sort of cultural differences that have resulted in that or is this sort of a geographical influence on it as well in terms of the plants or the trees that are available uh, yes I mean uh, traditional architecture there's less uh, we think about um, so there's a few ways to kind of come at it or think about it. One's formally and one is materially. So thinking about construction and construction te uh, the, uh, techniques and tectonics. And then there's a 
kind of social or relational way of thinking about it. Um, in terms of um, the relational way, yes, uh, in sa- traditional Samoan architecture, there's two different types of fale, and they have a the way the posts are constructed um, or placed have a kind of significance within um, governance. So particular members sit in particular spaces. Um, and then, and I'm less familiar with Tongan architecture, but there's kind of, uh, there is a way of thinking about placement and use of tools and use of materials. And again, in Māori architecture, it's similar, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, one of the things that struck me about the meeting house um, was to ha- having the columns straight down the middle yes. of what you would think would be like an open, multifunctioning space. So, you're, yeah. so does that actually have a, an influence in how they use the space? And is that a deliberate act rather than just a practical thing? Yes, it's a <laughs> deliberate act. And I think um, it's useful to think of it as a deliberate act because um, it's it sort of um, moves it away from it uh, it's useful to think about it as a deliberate act because it um, then we can really take into account how building is well the kind of act of building and architecture is really woven into larger kind of um, cultural understanding or an indigenous way of knowing how to build or f- mm. a building um, and I think it also allows for more, more nuanced sort of understanding. Yeah, it's such a t- inversion of this classic sort of Western idea of a church with sort of a, a central aisle or central passageway that's framed on either side. You have the meeting house where the columns are literally right in the middle and it seems very, from an architectural point of view, unnatural in a way. Mm. But then it's interesting to see how, how that might influence how the space is used. Mm. And as you're saying, is there is there a social... Um, hierarchy you mentioned of, of where people sit in relation to that. Yes, there is. And um, that kind of um, that's uh, negotiated um, in across various ceremonies and rituals or proceedings and depending on what the proceedings for. Um, so those sorts of things are sort of really negotiated in the time space of the of, of that um, moment. Um, I think, yeah, I, one of the things that sort of uh, various architectural theorists think about is how in sort of the oceanic way of thinking about things, space is open and relational, so it's in between, whereas with the Western framework, it's always contained and requires walls to contain it. Um, and that being a kind of paradigmatic shift in thinking, so to kind of I guess maybe um, it requires a shift to understand why something that sort of seems counterintuitive to an arrangement of space, for example, putting columns down the middle or uh, how how that actually makes a lot of sense or, in fact, is very central. Um, mm. uh, or, yeah, or is in keeping with value systems, uh, different value systems for a whole different worldview. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of the sort of difference in the way Maori and, and um, Western ideas treat the land ownership as well. Yes. Um, about sort of the, obviously the colonists came in and started dividing everything up and putting fences up and saying, this is my bit and this is your bit and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas the, I guess the indigenous 
attitude is that more communal attitude of no one owns the land and everyone owns the land and it's all part of the same thing. So do you think that relates to the way that oceanic uh, people treat architecture as well in architectural space? I mean, I don't know if that, I mean, the case has been made that we're guardians for the land or that people uh, see themselves as like kaitiaki, which is guardians of the land. So we, we don't necessarily have a, ownership but i don't know uh how much of a case has been made for that being um oh yeah it has been made um because in maori architecture you know sort of ancestors are in uh, are the building they're embodied by the building so tupuna like take care of the land so there's a kind of there's no discrete um ways of thinking about the world um ancestors are part of a building and that building is part of the land and we're kind of all in a continuum of thinking about a continuum of guardianship so in that way yes i guess it's understood it's probably i don't know if um in terms of more bro broader oceania i don't know if that case has been made certainly there's been sort of a lot of uh kind of discourse around whether or not the folly was an upturned um canoe or an, a canoe that's been flipped over or whether it was always that shape and then there's always also been various perspectives on whether or not it's useful to think about that what's clear is that there's definitely a sort of language sharing an architectural language sharing between um, maritime construction um, and building construction uh, so openness um, and caring for the land and its relationship to the whale. Um I don't, I don't know of any argument that's been made for that, <laughs> um, but it, it's um, certainly a case has been made for a sense of being in connection with um, the greater, I guess, um, the world, cosmos. Mm and architecture yeah yeah and of course you're here teaching many uh new zealander students how to uh, be architects yeah um how does uh indigenous oceanic and maori architecture influence the students here um in terms of their work in terms of their philosophy and especially given the name of this podcast the theory behind what it is that they're doing um architecturally well um i mean uh in several ways, um, at a, a kind of construction level, you know, we're very interested in timber construction. We have um, a lot of leading kind of practices and researchers here who specialize in timber construction. Um, so there's that um, aspect. Uh, at a architectural historian level, or cultural and heritage level, um, there's different, you know, that brings with it a different also a, a, um, an attitude or approach to what we might think about when we think about heritage um, and conservation and issues around that, you know, um, whether or not, um, you know, some indigenous practitioners think it's uh, things should um, have their life span and that lifespan should be honored. Um, and when buildings, when it's time for a building to sort of uh, no longer be, then it's time. So, you know, whether or not, um, Western understandings of conservation adhere to that is something that's being, I, I guess, uh, negotiated. 
still mm. um in theory of theory sort of does an interesting thing when it comes into contact with practice and that it's sometimes uh, actually down to legislative kind of measures at, at that level uh in terms of design studio um or design um practices uh i mean we have ideas about biculturalism and bicultural design and that's you know we had the treaty of waitangi here uh so that's a kind of legal and formal document which um that governs you know sort of the all of aotearoa in new zealand how we might think in and around um a kind of future of a country that has colonialism um and how we might uh, sort of honor kind of maori people um and communities so there are those sorts of aspects which still feel like they have a lot of theoretical space for designers to think in and around so students often uh take on um take on these kind of ideas and often just play with them so i guess i would sort of Uh, in a large way just say it's more expansionary but it seems to be an expansion uh, an expansion of their thinking uh theoretically and mm. that's how they tend to how i tend to see it being applied a way of thinking like almost having another um sort of not taking it as a given the western framework's the only framework to consider design issue yeah and do you think that expansionist view is becoming more prominent in new zealand architectural education recently like is there sort of a shift of attitudes in any way over the last few years or decades about how maori architecture is treated yes um i would say so i mean part of that is um we're having more indigenous practitioners graduate we're having more maori and pacific um graduates from schools uh and they're going on to shape the profession um we also have um you know iwi uh, also now you know with um various settlements uh, we are now interested in centering um their graduates uh at projects and significant um projects so that's also a motivating factor for uh, the profession to sort of take it more seriously more broadly but also um i think there's a um there's also where sort of uh there's a sense for example the uh New Zealand Institute of Architects has just um been given a name um of course and now I've, it escapes me um but um they've been given a like a Maori name so there's a sort of cultural uptake uh and consciousness um around um what a multicultural future for the country might look like in terms of the built realm and this also we're coming to a time where sort of we're hitting the 100 150 year mark for a lot of significant buildings so this conversation about how we think about the future of the built realm is very is is seeing a resurgence as well yeah well it's it, it's a sort of sort of a strange comparison to compare western architecture with maori architecture given you wouldn't have a or you haven't in the past had like a maori railway station or a maori parliament building or a, mm. Ma- a maori concert hall or anything like that mm. but it is it is this sort of confined to almost vernacular architecture in a in a very restrictive way in a lot of people's mindsets so do you think mm. there there's potential for 
expanding the sort of the scope of what Maori architecture actually is in, t- mm. in terms of the program, just of sort of, sorts of buildings that you actually get to build. Yeah, I think so, of course. I mean, I see, I saw um, a master's project that thought about a community center, housing, and I see these routinely using tau, through Tao Māori worldview um, uh, just, you know, last year. And I saw, I've seen a multiple of those so um completed by a maori student who was sort of really um invested in seeing these kind of programmatic you know um not necessarily understood by people who are non-maori as you know not programmatically understood as maori per se but um i think uh, i think it's very much um i think everyone's interested in that um I could I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> I hope not. Um, but I think there's great interest, and in, I think definitely as we see more Indigenous practitioners uh, graduate or yeah, graduates, I think we're going to see what that looks like to them on their terms, um, mm. which I think is really is where the real sort of um, where that kind of shift is happening. Yeah. Do you think? That have sort of having been a colonialized, colonized—that's the word I'm looking for—colonized mm. country. That there's this sort of this almost technological binary between the the westernized sort of large high tech, um, advanced um, sort of architecture and projects, and then almost as a reaction against that, there's almost a deliberate vernacularization or or aversion to necessarily the high tech by maybe the Maori community as, as almost as to deliberately draw a contrast and make a distinction of it, of itself versus the, the westernized culture. And has that, does that exist at all, do you think? And has it held back um, Maori architecture maybe? Uh, not that I've observed. Um, in fact, uh, all the... Um the Māori graduates I've seen have been very future-focused uh, and that has been felt part of their own kōpapa or like um, Māori processes is to be innovative, is to be technologically minded, is to keep um, value systems, Māori value systems or Indigenous value systems. I'm also not Māori, so I can't really speak. All I can say is what I've observed. Um, so... It's a thing of keeping values at the center of the design, but not necessarily a sort of, uh, I haven't at all actually seen, in fact, quite the opposite, um, seen sort of a real interest in technologies and how technologies may promote equitable, um, greater equity for Māori. Um, yeah, that's that's actually what I've mm. more observed, yeah. Yeah, and what it's been interesting traveling around, seeing the sort of the integration of beginnings of integration either on old buildings or new buildings of Maori and indigenous designs within contemporary architecture or even sort of post-war architecture where you see these sort of uh, precast concrete panels with the certain patterns in and this mm. kind of thing and there's just hints amongst all of the sort of westernized contemporary architecture of that influence so what do you think is the sort of the appropriate level of either separation or integration between those kind of two architectural worlds uh well various uh, there's different sort of perspectives on that. Um, one, you know, if it's if some of the work is not completed by if if it's been appropriated, say if the kind of patternization has been appropriated by a non-indigenous practitioner, um, 
to uh, sort of, I guess, patternize a building. Uh, there's a bit of discourse around whether or not that's whether whether or not that has a kind of future um, for meaningful for meaningfully thinking about um, indigenous architecture. Um, there's a yeah, there's a bit of discourse and also a bit of uh, sort of uh, skepticism, healthy skepticism around whether or not that's um, the way forward for meaningfully thinking about indigenous um, design principles. So um, I think it's it's really a case by case um, thing. I think. Per, uh, you know, a uh, different argument can be made for different contexts and different spaces. But um, it is becoming clear that Māori and Pacific people uh, wish to be at the centre of the design process for buildings that concern their built-in world, um, their built realm, um, and their communities and their people. So um, it's less about, I think, a formal thing for indigenous practitioners. I think it's more about a holistic kind of thinking when it comes to um, how a building might materialize indigenous values um, and perspectives or narratives. Yeah, I guess it's a difficult sort of side to approach it from if you're if you're not uh, a member of the indigenous community and you're trying to sort of show that you value that in your design work that you're doing, yes. you're sort of kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't in a way that you're you're trying to sort of incorporate something that's yes. that you value that you generally want to take to consideration of. But then if you do, you're accused of culturally appropriating. Yes, yes. So I mean, to answer that question for um, the kind of, you know, because I'm conscientious that that um, response elicits sort of... Um, sort of like, oh, well, well, what can we do if you're not Indigenous? And I think um, kind of keeping those conversations open is really great. And I think that's the kind of um, work that's kind of been going on. And that's, uh, that's been, you know, for example, realising that um, New Zealand Institute of Architecture might, or architects might need, you know, should have a Māori name. Um, it's sort of uh, that thing of, um working past those sort of anxieties i think um and and staying open to those kind of that dialogue i think is quite interest interesting is an interesting thing that's happening in new mm. zealand yeah well it's interesting you mentioned the word patternization as well because i've i was down in christchurch for a fair while and mm. seeing all the new buildings going up there obviously since the earthquakes mm. that a lot of them are these sort of um what I always call bad versions of pseudo-modernism um, that have been sort of someone's taken a grasshopper script or something and put a pattern on that's then in, in, like etched into the glass or like engraved in the wood or the stonework or something like that. But that's as far as it goes. It's sort of a shallow mm. interpretation. So do you think there's a tension between the, the theory, the modern sort of modernist or the contemporary theory of Western architecture and the theory that Maori architecture has in terms of the community side of it as well and the and the way that space is presented architecturally yes yes I think there is a tension but I also think that's what theory uh, theory's always been a tension uh you know has tensions in it you know there's it's, it um it requires you a bit of risk because you know it's sort of a premise rather than a actual fact so I think well, for me, uh, um, I think that's why it makes it a sort of interesting thing and also sort of um, 
it's uh, it's not to say that all risk is worthwhile. It's to say that the kind of um, risk in buildings and uh, uh, theoretically considering um, these expressions is what is is quite um, it's a good thing to do. Uh, but it's difficult to say whether or not you know. I think um, I can only speak from my perspective, but um, for some people, patternization is is incredibly meaningful. Um, and then for others, they might feel like that wasn't so. Um, you know, it's not spatial enough. It's not within the building's DNA. Um, so it's really this. It's clear that those sorts of things are still being sort of negotiated in the built realm. Mm. And is there uh, one thing I haven't really noticed much of, I don't know if it exists at all, is uh, an indigenous sort of residential architecture around? Because you see, obviously, you see meeting houses around and you see contemporary buildings that have a patternization or something, something like that. But I haven't seen anything that is immediately obvious as indigenous vernacular architectural housing mm. rather than the sort of hangover from colonial mm. sort of housing. Yeah. So does, I mean, does that exist? And if, if so, what, what sort of, what's it look like effectively? Urban marae exist. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's, oh, um, urban marae exist. And uh, it's sort of, probably more formally more recognizable as traditional Māori architecture um, and um, there is housing within you know a sense of dwelling both permanent and temporary within um, some urban marae um, so yeah I mean whether or not there's kind of like bungalows <laughs> for want of a better word um, like a kind of typology no uh, not as yet um, although there are some interesting conversations within the housing uh, New Zealand uh, landscape about how to think about intergenerational living, which is uh, uh, how um, Indigenous people tend to, or sort of still still saying they, they would like um, and still saying it's how they live, mm. or definitely for Pacific communities. Would that have a knock-on effect on urban planning side of it as well? Because yes. it's very noticeable, sort of the American style urban planning model here, with mm. the grids and the wide streets and the very low density. Yes. So, is there would would there almost be a bigger urban planning effect of in integrating um, indigenous architecture more and theory more than actually an architectural effect? Um, well, uh, both hopefully, because you know, as we know, um, architecture sort of shapes how we do everything from day to day and urban as we know shapes our everything we do from day to day so it's hopeful that it's both um but we are in the middle of a housing crisis and it's become you know it's become a sort of like this critical thing now that um uh alternative pathways to or alternative ways of thinking about housing that that aren't just alternative they actually do have a plausible um, future focused or their future solving or future proofing housing for the next 200 or so years. Um, it's become clear that the old model doesn't really work so well um, and that low density now seems sort of, um, it seems uh, 
it's really noticeable that it's um, contributed to the housing crisis we see now and the kind of ideologies associated with that um, have also contributed to the housing crisis we see now um, in, in New Zealand, but arguably the world. Yeah. Well, that's also the Europeans' fault, isn't it, for exporting it? <laughs> it is noticeable, though, coming here, just how sort of reliant on cars everybody is and how there's yeah. complete... I mean, obviously, I've come from London, so I've um, I've been used to that in the last few years. Yes. But it's... Yeah, it's... It, if you want to get anywhere other than in a car, it's almost impossible. Yes. Which, uh, which seems a bit of an antithesis to what sort of a good community would be like, especially here. So. Mm, it is. I, I, I think uh, certainly in Auckland um, and the rural areas, you know, um, some rural towns are kind of... They're really... Um, somewhat marginalized by our current transport system because of um, bus scheduling uh, and mobility outside of those areas is really difficult um, which is you know it's saddening to hear that um, at, at an urban level uh, it, it appears untenable you know that we don't have the a kind of something that's comparable to London's to London but uh, that kind of infrastructure I mean is a long-term project and um, there has been there's been multiple cases of it being sort of picked up and then sort of worked on and it certainly seems like um, our current mayor is putting a lot of time and energy into improving um, public transport so we're not relying on cars mm. how does sort of the New Zealand architectural world view the rest of the world or the rest of the architectural world does it follow it closely does it sort of mirror it or try to adapt certain things like i've noticed there's a lot of um postmodern architecture here like more so than anywhere else i've ever been pretty much and <laughs> i guess that's reflective of when the building booms were yeah um so yeah yeah how does the, how does the architectural world in new zealand view the rest of the sort of the architectural world um well uh <laughs> i'm but one voice <laughs> speaking on <laughs> how, do you, how do you view it then? yeah how do i view it um um well, I am an indigenous uh, kind of uh, researcher and practitioner, so I'm very interested in everything the world is doing. I also see myself as a global citizen. Uh, I, I think a lot of us do here, even though we're sort of quite a remote country uh, geographically, but perhaps less remote um, uh, with kind of Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, a global citizen, but with, you know, sort of uh, centering my own kind of country, uh, well, you know, as a citizen as well of this country and uh, feeling like an active member of its broader communities. Um, obviously, we we um, we think a lot about all the stars overseas and the stars here and what they're making. And um, I, I think we're definitely the sort of, I think the pioneering spirit of of what it means to be in a country like this, um, um, that spirit is kind of always something that looks um, to learn. So quite interested in learning from um, architecture uh, over over the ditches. Um, we definitely have. I mean, this uh, we have a, like a kind of culture where um, I guess you could call it the brain drain, but it's quite. Uh, you know within um, New Zealand culture it's quite um, it's a very it's almost like a sort of 
passage, uh, write a passage that you sort of go over seas and sort of uh, learn for a bit and then come home. Uh, and that's still very much people do that. So I think we're very much aware of what the kind of movements um, across the world and across the globe, uh, and we feel part of that community. Um, but as well, uh, I think because of um, this place, um, I think there's a definitely um, everyone that I know, certainly in practice and sort of working in theory research space, um, is very interested in what's happening here as well. Mm. Do you think there's a difference in the attitude that architects here have generally to the rest of the world? Are they more, are they more I don't know, more daring and more progressive or more sort of stuck in their ways and, and sticking to what they know? Or are they, is there, is there a general sort of New Zealander attitude to architecture that differs at all? I mean, my sense of it is that New Zealanders always have a, a kind of um, um, a can-do attitude mm. about, um, yeah, a can-do pioneering spirit uh, about their approach, and that certainly doesn't, um, certainly within architecture, the sort of um, practitioners I see around are very, you know, they're um, men and women dedicated to the built realm, um, making you know spaces that make lives better uh and sort of prepared for the i guess the hard yakka that takes <laughs> to do it so we have some pretty um strict regulations and then we also sort of to a degree we're um affected by how much it takes how much sort of it takes to get particular materials here and, mm. and those sorts of things as well so it's not the easiest profession i'd say um but a profession that um, architects here take very seriously yeah i was struck by how few sort of like, large iconic projects there are around oh, I, yes. I guess that's just a reflection of the size of the country i suppose in a way and the small number of cities mm. and, may, and maybe like you said the the lack of large infrastructure projects you don't get the big sort of railway stations and airports and mm. all these sorts of great big things so is that i don't know it's, it's, it strikes me as a limiting factor on the the ability of Kiwi architects to express themselves effectively, that you are mm. limited to the houses that are being rebuilt or, I guess, apartment blocks, a lot yes. of those. I mean, batch, um, batch design is a kind of a celebrated t uh, typology and um, a lot, you know, some of the batch design in New Zealand is stunning, um, very, it's excellent. Um, and residential spaces and domestic buildings they're they're also stunning so there's a lot of expression in that uh sector of the industry mm. um so that then perhaps i should be giving you a map <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah well it did stri struck me in christchurch how strange it was having so such a high proportion of the place being made out of contemporary architecture that's less than five years old because obviously because of the rebuilding and that's it it lends the place a sort of i don't know la style kind of Beverly Hills but not necessarily in a good way kind of oh, a, mi yeah, a mixture yeah. of good way and bad way yeah um yeah I mean it almost feels like parts of it feel like a gated community and that you've got these sort of large mansions again maybe that's just the urban model yes um let, let's talk about Pacific architecture more generally ah yes um what what are the sort of key differences I know you've mentioned the sort of differences in construction method and that kind of thing but how is there sort of a correlation between the the cultural variation 
around the Pacific um, and the architectural variation? Yes, uh, I would say so. I mean, um, you know, uh, there's an argument to be made that all um, our kind of architecture comes out of is fit for purpose. Um, and that, that fit for purpose, the purpose being ceremonial or ritualistic or domestic or you know, programmatic, programmatic in some way. Um, so I guess that's to say, yes, um, cultural value shape, you know, value system shape our built world, shape the creative practices that um, inform uh, what is built and what isn't built. Yeah. Mm. So yes. And is there is there a brain drain as well from the sort of Pacific Islands to New Zealand or to Australia or elsewhere? Is that a problem? Um. Well, uh, in some ways, yes. Uh, in that, um, New Zealand is uh the second closest to in the to the Pacific, you know, region. Um, the closest architecture school. Uh, there's one in Papua New Guinea as well. So. Um, and I think I'm not sure about this, but I think we're one of the uh, where the I don't think PNG has a planning department either, or urban planning. Um, but arguably, uh, the kind of cities in the Pacific, although they probably don't, com they can't compare in terms of population size to say somewhere like London. They're still facing very urban um, issues and challenges. Um, so. Um, you have to train here, um, and then whether or not, after training here, um, students feel like or graduates feel like they can return with the same sort of opportunities uh, in the Pacific. Um, there's that that's to be kind of considered when we think about the kind of migrating, uh, what those the flows look like back and forth. Um, and does that affect the sort of the flow of values as well? Because if they're coming to New Zealand to train. Is that almost clouding their indigenous sets of values to some extent? Even if they did go back, they then might take westernized values back with them rather than using more of their own indigenous values. I mean, from what I see is, uh, no. Um, those value systems seem to be, uh, from what I see, deeply embedded within, their, within identities, specific identities that are... It appears to me from the students I see that don't seem to those value systems seem deeply embedded with their own within their own psyche. So um, what what does sort of grows is like sort of sensibility and a kind of architectural knowledge or toolkit that's also informed by uh, you know our kind of program as well as the research that's that's undertaken here because we're research led um, teaching sort of uh, at the university and then also. Um, uh, kind of the canons, you know, uh, the kind of uh, that are, f are cons considered fundamental to an architectural education. So no, not uh, I haven't observed that. Um, uh, from what I've observed, um, Pacific graduates uh, um, uh, prioritize their people and communities and. Um, thinking about how to make their lives better through building appears to be very much at the top of their like sort of list of things to do once they finish and start practicing. Mm. And do is there a, going back to sort of the practical side of indigenous architecture and the sort of the patterns and the ornament and that kind of thing? Mm. 
is there a, another tension there between the um, largely heavily decorated indigenous architecture and the more sleek, minimalist, modernist architecture? And is that how do you sort of deal with that as a lecturer yourself teaching them? Is it a sort of exploring your own preferences kind of thing? Or is there is there a tension there that you need to get them to resolve between high, highly ornamented architecture and minimalism? Um, uh, mm, I, <laughs> um, I ask you wearing a, a very, very patterned dress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, uh, I sort of went through architecture education under a few modernists. So I sort of... Um, uh, I sort of, uh, I, I, I think the, uh, a recovering modernist. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I see myself as a recovering modernist with um, sort of uh, my own kind of Pacific value systems, which, um, you know, we celebrate color and uh, um, craft. Uh, detail and um, particular things that sort of um, would you know there was a big attempt to wipe some of those things out um, during modernism um, aspects of um, so so as an educator though I think one of the things that um, I try and sort of let students think about is um, having a, a, a creative process that is critical of um, that's critical as well as historically aware. Um, I think um, Pacific, the Pacific region, uh, from anthropology, you know, across the kind of sciences um, and across the kind of uh, various like sort of disciplines, has had a history of perhaps um, Pacific being Pacific people being Pacific people and culture being studied. Um, by people who are not Pacific, and it's sort of being misinterpreted. Um, so I sort of make a case for an education which is rigorous around thinking about history, um, about um, our histories, our perspectives, what perspectives are being told, and applying that to the creative process. And I think that, for me, has been more of a priority rather than um, sort of trying to resolve tensions in form uh, it's been more about sort of a criticality around um, the creative process that's historically aware as well as um, theoretically kind of rigorous mm. yeah yeah I found it interesting seeing especially the um, the old 19th century churches mm. a lot of them obviously fairly traditional but some of them integrated with Maori architecture and yeah. almost being like a hybrid of a meeting house and a kind of whatever it is, Catholic or Protestant church. Yeah. Which is a really strange looking thing when you're looking at this thing that you're used to seeing, I don't know, neoclassical or neo-Gothic um, ornamentation on it. And suddenly it's covered in these beautiful like red and black and strange curving Maori patterns with the figureheads. Yes. And that's like thinking about that kind of thing. That seems to me the perfect balance and hybridization of the two sides of the culture mm. which maybe I, you don't see perhaps in other typologies and in contemporary architecture quite as much yeah i think um i mean even the question of like cultural appropriation tokenism um 
you know, the particular buildings and applications and they occur in a particular time and a moment. Um, and um, sometimes when it occurs, it's, it is an expression of where the profession or where the, um, the practice was at that time of negotiating two different worldviews or experimenting across worldviews sort of um, to use like an, a kind of uh, term of Dayman Salmon. But um, it's, um, I think the thing that's really interesting to me is um, what that might look like for the future. You know, it's a kind of, yes, we have uh, we have our own kind of regionalist um, influence on a sort of introduced religion and the kind of architecture that came with that religion, but also like um, what would what that kind of practice might look like in the future is quite interesting to me too, because it sort of expresses a sort of material um, a material, a perspective, a real uh, a, you know a political moment as well. Um, and those sorts of things are all sort of there in motion. Um, so whether or not that would be, whether or not that's ideal um, in the future, I'm not sure. Mm. But How do you see it developing in the future? Uh, with more Māori uh, architects, more Pacific architects um, being at the centre of design processes. Yeah. As a Samoan, do you ever feel sort of drowned out by the Maori in any way? Because they're such the, they're sort of the obvious um, and more significant and larger population. That there's sort of there's all these other Pacific Islander groups that perhaps get ignored because of that. Well, uh, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> one because um, you know Maori uh, Indigenous style te Aroha New Zealand, so that's one. But then also interestingly, um, the sort of Samoans are accused of a similar thing by the rest of the Pacific in some ways. They sort of high, sort of routinely sort of turn to across um, industry sectors as um, the Pacific, when actually it's really like differs like mm. Fiji, you know, Nauru, Tokelau, Marshall. I, I mean, I could list them all, but the point being that we're often sort of um, used in lieu of that uh, we used as a sort of example of all um, and so I'm, I'm kind of keenly aware that <laughs> um, there's enough space for all indigenous practitioners and thinkers and um, creators and producers um, and uh, yeah I don't feel a sort of sense of competitiveness around it. Yeah also it's part of that tokenism again isn't it that you get mostly well-intentioned people trying to do their best and not really knowing what they're talking about. Yes, and I mean, we don't, uh, to a degree, I guess we don't occupy um, the Pacific. It doesn't necessarily, you know, we're sort of uh, routinely regarded as kind of uh, a small, you know, these small islands um, that are very much peripheral to a global consciousness. Mm. Um, so I'm kind of used, to, I, I'm <laughs> fairly used to that. <laughs> um, uh, I don't agree with it. How big What population is small? Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, maybe 300,000. Oh, right, okay. Maybe. I could have that quite wrong. I routinely do. I could be mixing that with another country. Um, <laughs> I'd have to check. Yeah. Yeah, so it's quite small, but yeah. Well, I'd, as a rugby fan, I'd argue you have disproportionate influence. But... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. 
Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, kind of the way we take up uh, a kind of global consciousness is sort of more sporting related mm. rather than uh, perhaps architecturally, or, you know, certainly within the human sciences realm. Yeah, well, it does, as someone has been based in London um, recently, it does seem to me that London and sort of New York and the US do absolutely dominate architectural culture around the world, so just mm. in terms of all the media, architectural media and all this kind of thing and most of the writers and well-known mm. architects as well yeah so it's is there are there ways do you think of better considering a wider group of people architecturally on architects yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean because i i sort of i asked my friends like, if they could name a famous new zealander architect oh, yeah. no one knows the name of a single new zealand oh really not, oh, not no. one <laughs> that's, um, um, that's a shame yeah, so it's, it's, I don't know, maybe maybe New Zealand and Pacific Islands need to do a better job themselves of, of making more noise. Promoting. Promoting yeah, themselves. I, mean, um, <laughs> uh, I think uh, somebody who most people across the internationally will know is Taika Waititi. Who's, yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he talks about New Zealand as being terrible at pitching. So maybe that's part of that. Uh, pioneers, but not pitchers. Possibly. Have you seen Jojo Rabbit yet? Yes, I have. What did you think of it? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great. It was, yeah. fun. It was mean, really good, isn't it? Um, I'm quite like, um, you know, it's a very uh, New Zealand, you know, you can really sense the kind of New Zealand humour. Yeah. Uh, and that this kind of nothing's, uh, you know, a sort of perversity. <laughs> <laughs> about making what can be made fun of um and i you know i love watching taika act he's quite fun yeah he's quite fun to watch for me, for me yeah <laughs> yeah he's a fun guy it's it's strange to see so much investment by one country and a very small number of individuals i guess because you have fewer famous people or globally famous people from here mm. that that part of their identity their nationality gets sort of emphasized so much more um and uh, I guess it's nice to see people like him coming out into the world, but I don't see that with any architects because you sort of get British architects and American architects yeah. going around all over the place, building airports in China and sort of train stations in wherever. Um, but I've never heard of a sort of Kiwi architect mm. building anything outside of New Zealand. Um, a lot of architects do. Andrew Patterson um, has a few projects in China and has been like sort of working there as well as... Um, I believe Julie, uh, David Mitchell and Julie Stout did, did some planning in China as well. Um, uh, Andrew Barry, I, I think, may be working uh, internationally as well. Um, who's Andrew Barry is a professor of design here. Um, so there are, but perhaps again, um, I also find, I mean, I'm not too sure if this is um, familiar to you, the sense, but just keeping up with your own countries. Um, kind of the profession is a large enough task without <laughs> thinking more more broadly unless you have like a particular sort yeah, of interest yeah, sure. in a particular person so um, yeah I think perhaps it's a case of that as well uh, it's a very busy profession yeah. uh, that's very demanding and sort of keeping up with um, practices beyond your own sort of country and then things that are a little bit closer to you uh, is demanding enough without uh, mm. any any other sort of additional information. But I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose you would have more people going up to sort of China and 
and they're developing stuff there. Yes, because we are sort of Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, and there's an increasing influence, isn't there, from China and, and Asia down this way, especially financially. Yes, uh, particularly in the Pacific, there's a lot of um, aid from China, and that's really had a great impl- influence and impact on um, building uh, in Samoa. It's, uh, various kind of perspectives on that as well um less so in such a direct way here um yeah but mm. there is a relationship yeah and is, is the i don't know is it affecting auckland or wellington or new zealand much in the same way that it is with places like vancouver where you've got sort of property speculation and increased house prices and and problems for locals because of that or is it not really an issue yet uh not to my knowledge uh sort of issues that we had were sort of internal um they didn't really need external sort of assistance um there was probably some sort of impact but uh sort of a lot like we have i mean in terms of migration yeah we've got um um particular migrating but you know sort of the housing crisis is affecting people who um who aren't, you know, it's kind of affecting everyone in a very democratic way, mm. well, sort of undemocratic, really, if we're thinking about it. But um, n- no, not to my knowledge. But I'm not an expert, actually, in that yeah. area. Seems like everywhere has a housing crisis at the moment. Yeah. Are there, are there specific causes for it here? Is it just lack of available... Well, I mean, you've got plenty of land. I've noticed there's plenty of space. So you're not lacking in land, but is it a regulatory thing? Is it... Um, it's expensive to build, um, and we don't get paid so much. Well, as in the, the builders don't get paid? Um, well, everything costs to build, um, but whether people can afford what things are. So there's been a lot of inflation um, over the past 50 or so years. Um, and it's like sort of um, outpriced everyone, really. Uh, well, it's outpriced everyone some for the past decade. Mm. Um, I guess it's arguably a neoliberal sort of uh, kind of domino effect that's been set in motion since the fifties or sixties, I guess. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, it's not really um, yeah. Uh, Others might argue differently, but that's that's my perspective. Yeah, well, we've got the same problem in the UK as well, and from what I hear, lots of other cities have the same issue yeah. without lack of housing. So, do yeah. you think do you think architects have much of a ability to actually help with that problem? Because I see I hear a lot of architects, especially in the UK, saying, "Oh, we need to do this and we need to do that," but I'm not I'm skeptical as to how much we can actually do as design professionals to affect that sort of thing. Um. Uh, yeah, I do think we do. I mean, uh, and arguably we have a responsibility to do so. Um, we have a working knowledge of the kind of regulation uh, policies that shape these things, and we also have a working knowledge of how things come together and be uh, put together to like make a house. You know, there's a kind of very practical uh, skill set that can be turned towards such a worthwhile endeavour. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think and, um, I argue we should and that we are responsible too. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned um, conservation earlier and mm. about the sort of the, the young nature of the country and the 
a lot of 19th century buildings now coming up to sort of, I don't know, milestones of some sort. Yeah. Is that is that something that's, I don't know, is, is it something that's going to gain more prominence or is there, are you going to end up re-examining values about what needs to be preserved? Because from my point of view, sort of seeing something that was built in the late 1800s is like seeing something that was built yesterday. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting being in a country that doesn't have sort of 2,000 years of history and mm. suddenly you realize how valuable that is and what it's like. So is there, and, and does that indeed, does that apply to indigenous architecture as well? Mm. Are there old examples that people are trying to mm. preserve and others want to replace them or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the region was kind of settled across the whole region 3,000 years ago. So there is that history there. Um, is it reflected in the kind of Western kind of architectural canon? Uh, no. But there is a history there um, and a rich oral history that reflects that. Um, in terms of conservation, I mean, this is also another interesting thing. I mean, the kind of study of conservation arguably is a Western construct. So is how it's educated, sort of formulated across everything is only worth saving if it's 2,000 years old. Um, that's an interesting theoretical quandary to find yourself in. Um, I guess um, uh, <laughs> um, I'm not a conservationist, so I don't really, I don't really have a um, a practical thing to say about it, other than I think it's. Um, I th I think again, this re-examining history is quite an interesting thing to do in a country that had a colonial moment. Mm. Well, does it almost it creates a binary where maybe you've got a load of old colonial buildings that get preserved for a long period of time. And then maybe the indigenous buildings, because they're not subject to that same philosophy, they might get replaced, but then sort of the bureaucratic structures might then not value them as much. Well, we have this kind of interesting question around, you know, particularly with marae resilience and, um, you know, marae being subject to conservation law, but sort of a move away because then you might, potentially be subject to different legislation and then what that means you know in terms of like marae resilience like post Christchurch you know uh, thinking about quake proof earthquake proofing um, and also marae that is on like sort of you know coastal areas uh, what a kind of managed um, retreat might look like or some sort of climate change management because there are marae that are subject to rising tides that um, that weren't weren't an issue as like as recently as thirty years ago, and suddenly very you know water is lapping at these the edges of buildings now. So um, there's definitely a need need to think about conservation that is specific to the area, uh, specific to the region and the country and the country's um, kind of specific geographical kind of uh, dimensions. Um, I, th I think those are the kind of questions that are a little bit more pressing. I, I think it might be, well, maybe not pressing, but that are definitely pressing to Indigenous people. Um, conservation as a managed retreat from climate change versus the kind of conservation of a 19th century sort of building in sort of an urban area. Yeah, mm. I think uh, kind of conservation, uh, this kind of existential threat of climate change is actually like... Uh, it's, it's very, is foregrounded for a lot of indigenous people and communities.
Mm. Um, uh, in terms of conservation. Yeah, well, I suppose in a country with lots of geographical extremes that you end up getting a, a sort of faster turnover of buildings as well. Well, yes, and, um, you know, well, I mean, I can sort of switch to the Pacific region now. Um, uh, you know, kind of very much um, at the front line of what climate change means for living, day-to-day -day life. Um, I, I think the, the thinking around building conservation is takes a quite a different tone. Um, so those sorts of challenges are, I'd say, shaping what it means to think about preservation or heritage or culture preservation. Mm. It's a very, yeah, which is quite a different angle to think about, you know, whether or not we preserve a thatching or, yeah, tiles or something in, yeah. in Auckland. Yeah. And what are the sort of key questions that are occupying your mind and work at the moment, your sort of academic work? Um, well, I'm sort of very interested in healthcare environments. Uh, what is one of my interests is in healthcare environments. Um, Pacific people tend to um, present later with more far, you know, uh, further advanced kind of um, diseases across the board. Um, and I'm interested in sort of cognitive decline um, and how Pacific elderly are being taken care of. Um, with healthcare environments and thinking about the cultural aspects of what um, health healthcare looks like. Um, uh, for example, like, you know, counters, corridors, what within those, or what the kind of, um, whether or not we might think of spaces uh, more holistically in terms of taking care of Pacific people and communities. Uh, so that's sort of uh, occupying my mind. Um, also very interested in um, uh, how, um, uh, you know, how the regulatory world either um, includes or excludes um, uh, people of colour, um, which is sort of shaped by recent events in the country. Um, and those sorts of things are sort of uh, thinking about how to make spaces more inclusive uh, very is kind of at the forefront of my sort of um, interests at, at present. Mm. Yeah. And all the architectural implications of those, which is a difficult subject because a lot of the time there are none or it might seem there are none, but actually when you really think about it, there are a lot more. Yes. Well, I mean, I tend to think that architecture codes, what we value is most important in the world. Uh, so, um, you know, and I guess, um, I argue that like a, you know, like centering a, I would argue that centering a church, say, for example, and a particular kind of materiality in the center of Auckland sort of, it, it um, signals to kind of the wider society that that's the kind of values of the society and those are the key values to uphold and and to live by and so I guess I'm sort of interested in what that means for people as we move more and more to a more multicultural way of being in this place um, and then we also have a like kind of a historical context that has to be kind of acknowledged uh, meaningfully 
um, and respectfully. So those it is it's um, it's serious and good work. But it's also fun work. <laughs> That's the key thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Are you supervising any uh, PhDs yet? No, I'm not actually. Uh, we have um, we have uh, people contact us, and then we sort of I've had some people interested in doctoral supervision, but I haven't. Um, I'm not at present. I, I'm still actually quite new to this job, so um, uh, I'm kind of like a young, quite a young academic. <laughs> um, uh, although I'm not a young person. Um, so yeah that's hopefully to come yeah i'm sure you'll have a lot of fun and by the sounds of it you've got a lot of um people coming through as well that will have some interesting research areas yes i mean i'm i'm very excited to see you know that's part of what's exciting um to be involved in architectural education it's really it's exciting it's really exciting uh, to see all these young people coming through and their ideas and um, things they're thinking about and the way they're thinking about doing it, it's very exciting um well and by going back to where we started with technology oh yes um how how much uh adoption of technology is there here and is 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 it having the effect that people want it to have or is it are we sort of still stuck in the old days of 2d cad and that kind of thing because I, I come at this from a bin manager perspective i oh, used wow. to be a bin manager right. um Oh, so wow. I'm always curious how different places are using technology or not using technology. Yeah. Um, okay. And especially how does that relate to things like um, indigenous design? Like, are people using technology to recreate those sorts of things? Um, yes. I mean, there are specialists in this area. VR is becoming more and more of the thing, obviously. And then there's some interest in um, speeding up the building process, obviously, using VR and, B and BIM. Um, although, uh, because we have quite a different regulatory, it's quite heavy, uh, um, regulation building code here, um, there's kind of skepticism around whether or not that's actually going to speed up things or whether it's actually going to give architects more to draw um, and clarify. Um, so that's one aspect. Um, uh, you know, digital environments, um, you know, for example, uh, they're working here with... Um, uh, people, I think, from the health health sciences school. Um, I can't believe I can't remember if that's what it's called, but um, sort of better using VR and kind of the way we think about space as a way of thinking about um, being able to diagnose um, particular aspects of like the body. So there's kind of multidisciplinary uh, trajectories that technology is taking architecture. Um, or architecture practice here or architectural thinking here um, so that's one way um, and then there's obviously what I mentioned before uh, and then over engineering um, thinking about post post recovery um, building uh, there's kind of an interest in whether or not we can develop or there's already uh, whether we can develop software where you basically can aid post um, tsunamis or post earthquakes or hurricanes um, by sending um, that technology with like um, you know the idea that f for example you might be able to send a, s a series of VR headsets um, and some materials and that way might be a sort of very quick um, a rapid response 
uh, to rebuild, uh, rebuilding that kind of, particularly what we were talking about earlier with um, aspects of climate change and the realities of that in the Pacific. Um, so technology is always going to be of interest to indigenous communities and um, I think uh, Pacific people, a part of our value system is to be, is to progress knowledge um, and part of our value systems is to um, to be pioneering with that knowledge. So technology is of great interest um, mm. and in keeping with what we hold important. I'd love to see people replicating uh, Maori and indigenous designs with te high technology means. Oh, you will. That'd I mean, great. there'll be examples and I'll be able to show you at some <laughs> stage when my memory comes back. But um, yeah, there, there, yeah, there certainly is. And uh, particularly in the visual arts space as yeah. well. And finally, which film do you think is better, Jojo Rabbit or Hunt for the World of People? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to go for Hunt for the World of People. <laughs> See, I agree with you. I, I think it's fractionally better. Yeah, it's like it's we're down to decimals. Yeah, um, yeah we're really down to decimals. But, yeah, um, I'm going to have to go for that film. Mostly because um, of the landscape, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. Uh, I think it's because of, like, because it takes place in that kind of land. Um, uh, yeah, I think. Because it takes place here, I guess. Yeah, in the um, bush rather in the than... Bo yeah, <laughs> and the, there's that scene with the horse and, yeah, uh, yeah. Although, uh, of course, Jojo Rabbit was beautiful as well. Yeah. But, um, I'm looking forward to see, seeing what he does next. Yeah, same. <laughs> same. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Karamia Muller, thank you very much oh, for your time. Thank, thank it's been you. wonderful talking to you. Yes, and thank you And good luck with all much. of your research moving forward. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Thank you.